Hey, it's Mike from Theology on Mission Podcast, the very podcast you are listening to right this second. This is the second lecture from Dr. Michael Gorman, who delivered our annual Brady Theology Mission Lectures. If you want the PowerPoint, the notes from Dr. Gorman that go along with this lecture, just shoot me an email. I'll put my email address here in the show notes. Okay, friends, thanks for listening. As, as you know, the, the title of this lecture series has to do with participation in Christ and prepositions. Last night, we spent a lot of time looking at the prepositions with, in, and into with a strong emphasis on in, in Christ, and what does that mean? So if you wanted to divide things up into sort of segments, last night we were looking at uh, Christological or theological ways of being with God. Today, we're going to look at ecclesial ways of being with one another, but the two are inseparable, right? You really can't have one without the other. That was one of the main points I made last night. So the governing preposition for today, today is not going to be in, but with. And the title of this lecture is, therefore, with Christ means co-laboring with God and others. I figured out last night about halfway through the first lecture that the cameras were up in the ceiling. I was looking for a camera back there on the floor. And so I, I didn't always look at the best spot. So those of you who are watching on Zoom, I apologize if you saw more of my bald head than you did of my eyeglasses or my face. But I'll, I'll do my best to look at the right part of the camera today as often as I, as often as I can. Um, it, it is hard for me, though, to look completely at you because this paper makes an argument. I'm not just kind of spouting from the top of my head or off the cuff. So I am uh, having to be pretty closely tied to my text. The thesis of the first lecture was rather simple, but I think significant. And that is that Paul depicts participation in Christ, which is participation in the life of the triune God, as inherently missional and vice versa. That is to say, mission is inherently participation in the life of the triune God. Participation in the Missio Dei, I suggested, is not an optional supplement to life in Christ. It is part and parcel of faith into baptism, that uh, faith into and baptism into Christ. Being in Christ means being on the move, borrowing that language from Natalia Cherry's work on St. Augustine. For this lecture, my thesis is once again pretty simple, but I think and I hope also significant, and that is the following. Paul depicts missional participation in the life of the triune God as inherently collegial and cooperative. To participate in Christ is to participate with Christ, which is to co-labor with God and others as partners in the gospel. The key word here is with. Last night, I suggested from the work of Wesley Thomas Davy that Paul had democratized suffering. Today, I'm going to suggest that Paul democratizes mission as well, but not in an individualistic sense alone, but in a community sense. 
just as Paul democratized suffering, not only for the individual, but for the whole Christian community, the body of Christ, so also does he democratize mission. And he uses this uh, mission language with a flurry of with or co-words, including several significant clusters of such words. Anglican theologian and priest Sam Wells, whom I knew a little bit uh, when he was dean of the Duke Divinity School, Duke University Chapel, and I was there for a short period of time as a visiting faculty member. Sam Wells says that the word with is the most important word in the Christian faith. Very interesting claim. He works that out in a book, several books, but the first one is called A Nazareth Manifesto. And then he talks about uh, a book on mission and a book on ministry more recently with the same premise that with is the most important word in the Christian faith. We could debate that, but it is certainly a and an important Christian word. I want to begin, however, by saying also that the life and mission in and with Christ is inseparable from life and mission with others, with one another. And I want to do so by once again looking at a missional sacrament. And again, I'm using sacrament in a generic sense of an event of intensified participation, um, transformation, and grace. And the sacrament tonight, or today, this morning, sorry, is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the event of the Lord's Supper. So last night, baptism as a missional sacrament. This morning, the Lord's Supper as a missional sacrament. I want to begin by saying a few things about 1 Corinthians 10 and then 1 Corinthians 11. Although the Lord's Supper only appears explicitly in one letter of Paul's, namely 1 Corinthians, we assume it's a common practice in the Pauline communities. If baptism is the initial event of grace, participation, and resurrectional cruciformity and mission, all of them, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, is the ongoing, regular, repeated event of grace, participation, resurrectional cruciformity, and mission. I briefly, cautiously last night, used the words vertical and horizontal koinonia, or participation. But I again want to stress that they cannot be separated, and we'll see that when we look at 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. The Lord's Supper includes both of those forms of koinonia, or better, I should say, aspects or dimensions of koinonia. 1 Corinthians 10 focuses on the vertical dimension, koinonia with Christ and with his body and blood. It's an exclusive koinonia that rules out participation in any other so-called Lord or his cult. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22, uh, most of which is on the screen, where Paul exhorts the Corinthians to flee idolatry just as they are to flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle uses the coin, K-O-I-N, root, four times. Coin, root meaning is common, things in common. Koine Greek, common Greek. So he uses that root four different times, two different nouns, the idea of partnership or participation twice and partners or participation, partners or participants twice. 
I've used the NAB translation, not the NASB, the NAB, like I did last night for this particular text, because it captures best that phrase koinonia in four different places. As you can see, participation in the blood of Christ, participation in the body of Christ, participants in the altar, and participants with demons. So that participation language is strong in the NAB translation. At first blush, this passage sounds like a warning against idolatry and against spiritual death through idolatry, like the fate of the idolatrous and immoral Israelites with the golden calf. And this is, of course, true, or at least partially true. That's the primary message of the text when it's connected to what immediately precedes it in the verses before the ones on the screen. But if we read further, we see that this prohibition of what we might call exo-koinonia, koinonia with those outside, fellowship outside of Christ and his community, that this prohibition has an ethical and missional implication as well. One cannot properly love one's neighbor, especially one's unbelieving neighbor, by participating directly in exocultic activities, in non-Christ activities of worship, either in the temple's precincts or in a home if the food is identified as meat sacrificed to idols. That's a little later in 1 Corinthians 10, but you may remember that passage. This is because believers are always and everywhere to exhibit what Michael Barham calls salvific intentionality. Salvific intentionality. Michael Barham is a leader in the missional hermeneutics movement, teaches out in California. Salvific intentionality is an attitude that means we are always looking out for the salvation broadly understood, whether of believers or non-believers, when we act, when we make decisions. And that this kind of intentionality often incurs a courageous act of putting others' needs above our own or cruciformity, not seeking one's own advantage, but that of the other. This is a form then of participation in the Missio Dei, because obviously God's mission project is salvation, broadly understood. The principle of cruciform participation obtains also in the assembly gathered for the koinonia or the fellowship of the Lord's body and blood. This gathering is likewise missional in purpose, for when the believers gather for the Lord's Supper, it is an event in which they, quote, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, highlighted there in verse 26. But if those assembled fail to exhibit horizontal koinonia, horizontal fellowship and participation, by, quote, humiliating those who have nothing, verse 22, then they automatically extinguish any hope of vertical koinonia. It is no longer the Lord's Supper, verse 20, also highlighted. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Thus, his death is no longer proclaimed, even if the so-called words of institution are repeated. The Supper's missional function for believers and non-believers alike I assume from chapter 14 that occasionally non-believers joined in these assemblies. The, the missional function of the supper, both to build up believers and to invite others into the koinonia, 
is completely negated. We can describe the situation this way. By failing to partner with one another in a participatory meal that requires cruciformity for its integrity, the believers at Corinth have failed to fulfill their collegial participation in the Missio Dei. They have failed to lift high the cross. A similar failure of cruciform mission occurs if those with the gift of speaking in tongues fail to practice love for for one another and comprehensible witness to visitors by praying in tongues without an interpretation. That's a failure of love, of missional love. But even if no unbelievers are present, these failures of cruciform participation together are a breach of God's missional purposes. For the mission of God includes the formation of a holy Christ-like diverse people that can participate as such in the worship and mission of God. To put it bluntly for a moment, there is no mission where there's no cruciform participation because the church has essentially ceased to exist. It has excommunicated Jesus, who is supposed to be the Lord, the host, and the guest simultaneously. By its practices, it has excommunicated this Lord slash host slash guest and its most important members, the weak. (coughs) Pardon me. In fact, the Eucharistic liturgy at Corinth has become what William Cavanaugh calls an anti-liturgy. Kavanaugh reminds us that invisibility is the foundation of torture. His book is called Torture and Eucharist. Now, we don't quite have torture at Corinth yet. But the invisibility is, of course, the invisibility of Jesus and the invisibility of those who have to come late to the supper because they're working or they're slaves or whatever. Kavanaugh says that invisibility is the necessary foundation for doing harm to others. It's the body of Christ, which is both the one sacrificed for our sins and the one of which we are now part, that makes us as Christians relieve pain rather than inflict it, relieve pain and suffering of the weak. Conversely, however, if the believers do do practice cruciform missional hospitality, toward one another and toward others, they will become, and there's transformation, they will become an instantiation of the missional people of God that God has called them to be. Does that make sense to everybody? If you don't practice those things, your mission has been negated because you're no longer doing what you say you're doing. In other words, participation in Christ can never be a Lone Ranger or part community event. It has to be all in, all, not just completely in, but inclusively in. To be in Christ is to be with Christ, and that means to be with, fully with one another. Christian mission is cooperative because the only way to be in Christ is to be with Christ, and the only way to be with Christ is to be with others. So now I want to look at some specific examples of co-missional work in Paul's letters, 
Before doing so, like last night, we have to begin theologically, not with one another, but with God. The basis of missional co-working together is the notion that God has worked with us, and now we work with God. Co-workers with God is the way Paul puts it. So, some texts about co-workers with God. The Greek word synergos, sorry, synergos, or synergos, I forget where the accent is, and synergeo, the noun and the verb, refer to co-working. They're not always applied to God and, and people, sometimes just people to people. But the term appears, uh, the noun synergos appears 12 times in the Pauline corpus and the verb three times. Some of these texts referring to one another, co-workers, and some referring to God. The notion that we are co-workers with God means theologically that God is the primary worker, the primary missioner. It is God's project, not ours. We are partners, participants, but not proprietors. I think there's a lot of church leaders that could learn from that sentence, right? We think we own it, or we own our silo of it. So let's begin with 1 Thessalonians 3.2 on the left part of your screen there. There are two possible ways of rendering this verse. The first one, the NRSV is a sample. We sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker for God, in proclaiming the gospel of, of Christ to strengthen and encourage you for the sake of your faith. Or we could translate it, we sent you Timothy, who is our brother and God's co-worker in the good news about Christ. That's the CEB translation. I think it's the right one. So does Paul refer to Timothy as his co-worker or God's co-worker? Well, of course, Timothy is Paul's co-worker. We know that from lots of places. But that's not the point. At least it's not the point here. The structure of the Greek text is pretty clear. We should render it emphasis on Timothy being our brother, Paul speaking corporately, perhaps referring to him and Silas, or perhaps also to the Thessalonians, and God's co-worker. That is, as Paul's envoy to and eventually from the Thessalonians, if you look at all of chapter 3, Timothy was doing God's work with God. As Andy Johnson puts it, while God remains the primary actor, God works together with and through Paul and his colleagues. This is a theologically critical point for Paul and for us. On the one hand, being God's co-worker is an enormous honor and privilege. On the other hand, it is a possibly terrible temptation to hubris and to abuse. I'm seeing some nods or hearing some amens, right? It's an issue of power again, isn't it? If I'm God's coworker, I must be really significant and important. I can do all kinds of things. I was actually flipping last night on the TV in the hotel for a little while. I came across a movie. I don't even know the name of it. It was about a doctor who had made a, a botched surgery, was being sued. He had been a top doc at this hospital and then um, was rated highly by his Harvard mentor, where he went to Harvard Medical School. 
But in one of the evaluations of the doctor, this mentor had said, I think he has a God complex. And in the deposition with the doctor, the doctor spoke and he said, folks, I don't have a God complex. I am God. It reminded me of the kind of power trips that certain kinds of people, and not all docs, thankfully, and not all pastors, thankfully, but the idea that we're co-workers with God can even morph into more than that. Such divine co-workers must always remember, as Paul does, that they are servants and stewards of someone else's mission and must participate in that mission in God-like, which means Christ-like, which means cruciform ways. In fact, that's precisely what Paul says in the next text about being God's co-workers, the more famous one, 1 Corinthians 3. The people in question are he and Apollos, and by implication, others. The verse is sometimes rendered, again, this on the screen in the middle column, something like, we are co-workers in God's service. That's the NIV. Other translations, however, say, we are God's co-workers. Have the NAB up here, the RSV, ESV are similar. Once again, the structure of the Greek sentence makes the second translation the more likely. God is named three times, always in the genitive case, to show human relationship to God, either as God's field and God's building or as God's co-workers. Bear with me with a little Greek and you can kind of hear the, the rhythm here. Theu garesmen synagoi, theu georgian, theu oikademeeste. The emphasis is clearly on God. God's co-workers we are. God's field you are. God's building. So the proprietorship and the project belong to God. We are co-workers with God, Paul says. The moniker God's co-worker does not over-elevate or overestimate the importance of the divine partners. God is given credit as the power behind ministerial success in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Ministers are held to account before God in the same text, right before verse 9, uh, right after verse 9, excuse me. Boasting in ministers is forbidden, and ministers are called servants and stewards who must have cruciformly shaped ministries like Paul's. There's even a catalog of suffering in 1 Corinthians 4, like the one we saw in 2 Corinthians 6 last night as Paul talks about his own ministry. To be sure, Paul sees himself and others, such as Apollos and Cephas and Timothy, as co-workers in the field and on the building that is the Corinthian community. But this is a dependent and derivative collegiality inasmuch as all apostolic mission is fundamentally participation in the mission of God. Now we turn briefly back to 2 Corinthians 6 that we heard last night, very briefly. Here we have the text, working together implied with God, then we, we entreat you not to accept the grace of God in vain. The RSV actually has with God in it, although it's not in the text, but I think that's what the working together verb means. Most translations do interpret the participial form of the verb as a reference to working with God. So of the three that we've looked at, most translations actually do say working with God in this particular verse. The context certainly supports that interpretation. There are three word pictures about working on behalf or with God. We are Christ's ambassadors, 520. 
We are to become the embodiment of God's justice, 521. And we are cruciform servants of God. We looked at those passages last night, the beginning of chapter six. So once again, the collegiality is both derivative and necessary. If I can coin a verb, ambassadoring is a corporate responsibility. Last night, we saw how difficult it was. A corporate participation in the divine mission. We, plural, are the Messiah's ambassadors. And this is true whether the we in this part of 2 Corinthians applies only to the apostolic team or, as I think, either implicitly or explicitly to all believers. All right, just to conclude this part. Although Paul names specific people with quasi-official ministerial roles as co-workers, we shouldn't think that average people in the church are something less. They too, by implication at least, are co-laborers with God. This will become apparent when Paul refers to such average people as his own co-workers. If Paul is a co-worker with God and we are co-workers with Paul, the logic suggests we are co-workers with God. He'll say that explicitly at least once. So we turn now to the idea of collegiality at the horizontal level, working with one another, and how important that is for Paul. In the, the providence of God, I suppose, as I was preparing to finalize this PowerPoint presentation a couple of nights ago, I got an email from um, the Grove Booklets in Cambridge, England. It's a series called Grove Books, but they're actually little booklets. If you don't know about it, they're great books and booklets about ministry. They come out of uh, Ridley Hall in Cambridge, England, Theological College there. Great booklets on every topic you can possibly imagine in ministry and biblical studies with uh, figures like John Barclay writing for them and leading uh, theologians as well as practitioners. And the booklets are about, only about 20 or 25 pages long, very insightful. So anyhow, I they, they send me an email every couple of days with new booklets or with advertisements for existing booklets. And this section was um, three booklets all about partnership and mission. It was great timing. One of them was about Paul's partnership with the Philippians and uh, very appropriate to what we're talking about here today. So I highly recommend that little publishing company, Grove Books in Cambridge, England. You can find them on the web. You can download a lot of their books as PDFs. All right. <clears throat> as we begin thinking about coworkers, let's start with something that we might not often think about, and that's the writing of Paul's letters. I mentioned this in class the other day. We're so used to thinking of Paul's letters as the letter of Paul to an individual. First of all, most of Paul's letters were not by Paul alone, and most of his letters were not to individuals. Even when they were to an individual, like in the case of Philemon, they're sometimes written to the whole church or to other people in the church as well. But notice on this list, you can see Paul writes with his brother, our brother Sosthenes, our brother Timothy, all members of God's family, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy. Obviously, Timothy is his most important co-author. So we, I think we need to take that seriously, that Paul sees his, even his apostolic writing as a joint project with others involved, including especially Timothy. Eight of the 13 Pauline letters, including all of the undisputed letters except Romans, 
are co-authored by someone in addition to Paul. Elsewhere, Timothy is specifically called my co-worker in Romans uh, 16 and uh, 1 Thessalonians as well. Okay, that's easy to miss, but I think significant. More significant, however, is Paul's actual language of co-participation. And I want to begin with the low-hanging fruit of Romans 16, because there's so much and it's so easy. If you've skipped over Romans 16 because you think it's just a list of greetings and so forth, think again. Romans 16 is worth a careful study for all kinds of reasons. Among other reasons, it is an embodiment of Paul's principle that in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, because all of those people are participants from Paul's point of view, not only in Christ, but in the mission of Christ described in that chapter. The preposition, or as a prefix, co appears multiple times, as does the prefix, I'm sorry, the preposition n. So I'm going to work through these sort of one by one, um, some in more depth than others. But let's begin with Phoebe. <clears throat> First of all, she's described as a deacon, not a deaconess. There is no such word in the New Testament, by the way. And she is in the Lord, to be welcomed in the Lord. She's a benefactor of Paul and others, probably of the church at Corinth. And even though she's not explicitly called a co-worker, it's pretty clear that Paul considers her to be a co-worker. So much so that she, in a sense, forms probably takes the letter to Rome and perhaps even interprets it and explains it or answers questions about it as it's read orally in the gathered community. So it could be that Phoebe wrote the, or at least spoke the first commentary on Romans, which I think is pretty significant. Priscilla and Aquila are specifically named as co-workers in Christ Jesus. Notice the double preposition, right? With or co and in. So Paul puts them together here. He'll do that additionally as we move through the chapter. Um, notice Priscilla's name comes first, the woman. And uh, Prisca in this case, rather than Priscilla as in Acts, but same person. Moreover, Paul extols, if we read further, their cruciform missional activity on his behalf. He says they risked their necks for my life. Moreover, their missional activity is known to and appreciated by all the churches of the Gentiles. And they continued their missional service by hosting the assembly and assembly in their home. Moving on to another pair. Interesting, Prisca and Aquila, Andronicus and Junia, not Junius, a man, but Junia, a woman. Um, are these two married couples? Probably, at least the first one. Uh, and is it possible that Paul takes the dom dominical admonition to go out or send out people two by two? Kind of interesting. Paul describes these as co-family members. Does that mean simply ethnic relatives, spiritual relatives? And co-prisoners, the term actually can mean co-prisoners of war. 
the apocalyptic battle that is the mission of God. This is almost certainly to be taken both metaphorically and literally. They were literally in prison with Paul because of their participation in the divine mission of warfare, and they were spiritual warriors, so to speak. Moreover, Paul says, they were in Christ before him, as if that is a solemn indication of their primary identity, individually and corporately. In addition, like Prisca and Aquila, they are guilty of cruciform activity, a missional witness that has landed them in prison, and they are therefore said to be prominent among the apostles. Probably the best translation. All right, moving a bit more quickly with some of these other names. Ampliatus is my beloved in the Lord. Urbanus is our co-worker in Christ. There again, the double preposition. Apelles is approved in Christ, which suggests he had been engaged in faithful participatory mission. He is tried and true. Herodian is identified as Paul's co-family member. The members of family of the family of Narcissus are in the Lord. Trifena and Trifosa are workers in the Lord. The word co isn't there, but the same notion. Paul calls Timothy his co-worker. And as we said, uh, God's co-worker in 1 Thessalonians. Three more who send greetings are named as co-family members. And then in addition, we should note two more of the greeters. Tertius, the letter secretary or writer, is explicitly in the Lord. And implicitly, obviously, one of Paul's co-workers. And Gaius, the host of the whole church in Corinth, is implicitly also one of Paul's co-workers as he writes from Corinth. We see then in this collection of greetings, this simple list of names, it looks like, from Paul and others to the Roman believers, <clears throat> that participation and mission belong closely together. Male and female, Gentile and Jew, slave and free, as I said earlier. It is also an encomium to Paul's central values of cross participation and mission. <coughs> Pardon me. Well, once again, in addition to these lists that we've been looking at, I'd like to look at a few other passages about this theme of co-participation with one another in a few other texts. So, let's go to Philippians. I mentioned this booklet that just came out that talks about Paul and his partnership with the Philippians and vice versa. But let me begin here by speaking about uh, a few uh, texts in the letter to the Philippians that bring out this theme of, of partnership and co-participation. I briefly mentioned Philippians last night, and we'll pick up on one or two of those texts today and add a few more. In this letter, Paul uses both co-language and commonality language, participation language of koinonia, to express the missional context and cruciform shape of life together. Cruciformity in Philippians is first of all about faithfulness to God and the gospel and love for others. Suffering is a product of these practices. It is not something we aim for. I want to emphasize that. Cruciformity is not fundamentally about suffering. It's about faithfulness to God and love for others that may result in suffering. I say that in part because my friend Stanley Hauerwas 
when uh, my book, Cruciformity, came out, sent me a two-sentence letter. You know what those two-sentence letters from Stanley are like. Two-sentence letters. It's a letter that said, congratulations on your new book, Mac. That's Stanley Harawas imitation. Not very good one, I'm sure. Um, we all need a little bit more suffering. That was the second sentence. Two sentences. Congratulations on the book. We all need more suffering. I went like this and Stanley, I missed the point of the book. The point of the book is not suffering. The point of the book is faithfulness to the gospel, faithfulness to God and to Christ. But I think he got it. He may have been partly kidding. Paul says in first, uh, the first chapter of Philippians, you are all my co-participants in God's grace, both while in prison, my being in prison, and in defense and support of the gospel. Paul uses the words synkoinonai and koinonia as generic terms for the Philippians' multivalent communal participation with him in the gospel. He speaks of the Philippians' participation in the gospel from the first day until now in verse 5 of chapter 1. This participation and partnership includes, but is not limited to, the Philippians' financial support that Paul alluded to in chapter 4. More importantly, this kononia consists of their common missional witness to Jesus as Lord, to the gospel, and their common acceptance of the consequences of that witness. Only, he says, this is in the bottom of the left column, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, or as we were in discussing in class the other day, let your public existence, your public life together be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I know you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side, co-contending with one mind for the faith of the gospel. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing, and this always is translated believing in Christ, but once again, it's the preposition into. He has granted you not only the privilege of believing into Christ, of moving you into that sphere of power and presence, but of allowing you in that sphere now to suffer as well. Since you have the same struggle I have. As you remember, Paul described from last night, or if you were here, describes his own imprisonment and suffering as an aspect of being in the Messiah, not merely for Christ. So in, in 113 that we looked at last night, that he describes his imprisonment as being in Christ. Right after this text in chapter one, by the way. We have chapter two, the famous messianic poem about how Christ did not count his equality with God as something to exploit, but emptied himself. The introduction to that poem is there in the middle column. If there's any encouragement in the Messiah, any consolation from love, any participation in the spirit, that's actually of the spirit, and is incorrect up there, my, my apologies. Uh, Paul wants them to be of full accord, sim sukoi, co-in-soul. 
it's important to note that being in Christ, being in the spirit, and being in a community of koinonia are all the same thing. Paul continues in this passage by calling the community to embody a unified life of Christ-like humility, love, and self-giving. The text of chapter 2, verse 5, introduces the connection between their community and Christ, or put it the other way around, between Christ and their community. And this is a, a text that has been debated for centuries, literally, about how to translate it. I've put the two most common translations up there and then offered the third one. This is what I think Paul is actually saying. Cultivate this mindset and its corollary behavior in your community, within your community, which is in fact a community in Christ or in the Messiah Jesus. But however it's translated, the ethical mandate is often seen as an end in itself. Just be a nice, holy huddle. Community that loves one another. And that's very important. But that's not the end of the story. We've already seen in the previous verses that this is a, a text about what your life needs to look like inside so it can be a faithful public witness outside. And then Paul goes on after the, the poem to speak about how the beloved, as he calls them, are to be a, a source of witness in the world as they hold fast to or hold forth the word of life. This community character described in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, which is to be Christ-like, is ultimately missional in character because it's participation in the missional story of Jesus. What Paul is saying, in essence, is that it is the community's life together, a life of resurrectional cruciform existence that constitutes its public witness. Learning to love one another in Christ both instantiates the gospel and makes it possible to reinstantiate the gospel in the world. Paul goes on to say that this life that he's living and that the Corinthians are sharing with him is something to rejoice about. Even if I'm being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I rejoice and co-rejoice with all. And you should also rejoice and co-rejoice with me. So the suffering is shared and the joy, even in the midst of that suffering, is a shared reality. Let's maybe go back to the conversation we were having at breakfast this morning, Melissa, your, your point, the, the co-ness of both the pain and the witness and the joy or the consolation that comes in the work of the Spirit. All right. Toward the end of Philippians, Paul unleashes a flurry of missional participationist words, including several co-terms, not least of which is the repeating of the language of co-contending. Here's the cluster. I urge Odea, whose name means good journey, and I urge Syntyche, whose name means co-fortunate one, to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I ask you 
true conjoined one to benevolently co-opt them, bring them together, for they have co-contended with me in the work of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers. You can't get more co than that, can you? So notice what Paul is trying to do here. There's a split. There's a, some division between these two leaders in the church. Maybe they're the leaders of the house church or some of the leaders of the house churches. Paul needs them to get back together to be co-joined in mission. And it requires a community to do that so that the community and they can be co-workers, continue to be co-workers in God's mission. Continuing in chapter 4, Paul draws, draws on other co-language. Yet it was good of you to participate in my troubles, returning to what he said in chapter 1, to share in my troubles. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, the province where Philippi is, no church entered into koinonia with me in giving and receiving except you. All right, so that's an important cluster about this co-laboring among, within the community, and then between Paul and the community. I'm going to now walk us through, very quickly, other places where this co-language comes up. I want to begin with the letter to Philemon et al. There's a lot that could be said about this. We don't have time to go into detail, but it's a very interesting letter, particularly because this man, Onesimus, who had been a slave of Philemon, has now been a minister, has become a believer, a loyalist, a participant in prison with Paul. And he's there for some reason, which we can't go into, but anyhow. Uh, and so now he's been a co-worker with Paul, in essence, and ministering with and to Paul. And now he's going to be uh, in this interesting position of being implicitly a co-worker with both, both Paul and his former slave, uh, slave master. All right, let me look just at the language. Philemon is called our co-worker. Archibus is called our co-soldier. Paul prays that the koinonia of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. Notice the missional language there of participation. He then says, if you consider me your partner, your koinonon, welcome him, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. Onesimus, the name means useful or handy, was once useless to Philemon, but is now useful both to him and to Paul. Notice those words, akreston and eukreston. You couldn't help but almost hear the word Christos in them. Paul is playing with these words, Onesimus meaning handy and useful, all these. Uh, I wish we had could just a whole thing on Philemon. It's a great letter. The language is appropriate here because Paul sees the relationship among believers as a form of missional koinonia. And Onesimus is now included in this circle of Koinonia mission. Not only the name Onesimus, but the character Onesimus in this letter 
takes on an important role as a missional Christian, a phrase which for Paul is redundant. If Philemon had remained in prison with Paul or returned to Paul after going back to Onesimus, which Paul might have wanted, Paul might have called Onesimus his co-prisoner. But we learn in this letter that Paul actually does have a co-prisoner or another co-prisoner of war, war, namely Epaphras. He's mentioned at the end of the letter. He's also the one who founded the church in Colossae where this, uh, to which this letter was probably written. So here's the first point to derive from this important letter. Those who benefit from the Missio Dei are called to participate in it to pass it on, no matter who or what they are. That's the dynamic at work in the letter. The second point is just as important. Participation in the mission is not restricted to those we would expect. Rather, mission-like suffering has been democratized. All converts, all converts become missionary disciples. At the term popular right now in the Roman Catholic circles. Let's turn briefly to First and Second Corinthians. In First Corinthians 16, where the household of Stephanus and all who worked with them are noted, Paul calls them with the verb co-workers in their service to the Holy Ones. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which is what the second text is, and I apologize for not putting the reference up there, 2 Corinthians one twenty four, after telling the Corinthians that he refrained from paying them another visit to spare them pain, Paul adds, I do not mean to imply that we lord it over you or over your faith. Rather, we are workers with you, Synergoi, for your joy, because you stand firm in the faith. That is, this is pretty remarkable, they are all equal partners. Paul is raising himself up to the level of the Corinthians, or raising the Corinthians up to his level. Hard to say which is which. But they are now democratized as participants in the divine mission. Equal partners. This is a clear affirmation that working and co-working in the Missio Dei is not limited to those with official ministry positions or titles, both apostles and ordinary lay people serve the same mission and the same Lord. All right, we turn briefly to Colossians and Ephesians. In Ephesians, we get the remarkable triple claim about the unity of Gentiles and Jews using the language of co, co-heirs, co-members of the body, and co-participants. They are beneficiaries of the mission of God, bringing Gentiles and Jews together and now, according to chapter 6, they're going to be participants in the divine warfare of the apocalyptic battle, clothed with God, so to speak, as Ephesians 6 images it. In Colossians, on the other hand, oh, by the way, I have this prayer, this wonderful prayer up there from part of Ephesians 3, just to remind us that Paul is always praying for uh, and hoping for the success of this mission to be carried out both through him and through the church as a whole. In Colossians, sorry, 
I don't have Colossians text up on the screen. Uh, well, I'll skip Colossians for now. There's lots that could be said about uh, the fullness of, of deity and, and what that implies. But in, in the interest of time, I'm just about out. Let me turn briefly to two texts in the pastoral epistles in 2 Timothy. Uh, like, second, like Romans 8, 2 Timothy speaks about co-suffering. Not this time co-suffering specifically with Christ, but co-suffering with me. Join with me in suffering. Co-suffer with me for the gospel, uh, Paul invites Timothy to do in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, I'm sorry, in, in chapter 2, verse uh, 8. And then in chapter, I'm getting ahead of myself. In chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, uh, co-suffer with me. And then he repeats that in chapter 2, just a little bit later. Like a good soldier of Messiah Jesus, co-suffer with me in the mission. That is, to co-suffer with Paul is an integral part of the call to participate in the ministry of the gospel. All right. Taking a breath for a moment. Where does this lead us and where does this leave us? Some concluding thoughts. In this lecture, my thesis has once again been quite simple, but I hope significant. Paul depicts missional participation in the life of the triune God is inherently collegial and cooperative. And he does this with a flurry and a cluster here and there of with or co-words. Phrases that are in themselves implicit arguments. Paul has democratized not only suffering, but mission more generally and invited all of his congregations, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, to be in mission with him, with God, and with one another. The, the, the divine goal for humanity is that in Christ, by sharing in his death and resurrection, people might become like Christ, and thus more fully human and more fully like God, paradoxically at the same time. They become more like God and like Christ in the power of the Spirit by participating together in the Missio Dei. So, three or four final points. Number one, the word with is theologically significant. It may not be the most significant theological word in the Christian lexicon, but it is near the top. And I commend to you especially those books by Sam Wells. His description of being with is really insightful. He says there's various dimensions, eight of them to be specific. I won't go through them all, but they include not only literal presence, but attention, delight, and partnership. Secondly, the shape of the life together in community must be mirrored in the world. The same shape must exist in the world. If, thy, if they diverge, the gospel is compromised. The missio dei is compromised. Thirdly, all believers are co-workers with God and with one another. 
no exceptions. And finally, partnership. Last night I said body needs to become a more important word in the church. Today I would say partnership needs to become more and more important. It should be more normal for Christian communities to partner together. Whether it's individual pairs, churches of the same tradition or different traditions, that can be very challenging given the differences theologically, liturgically, and every other way. Churches in urban and suburban contexts partnering. Churches in multiple contexts. Churches and other entities. Now, of course, there are already lots of existing partnerships. I don't mean to say there aren't. But it seems to me that one of the takeaways from reading Paul this way is to suggest that partnership is or should be a much more normal part of ministry than perhaps it, it is. We need to think more proactively about that dimension of Paul's perspectives on participation and propagating the mission of God. Thank you very much. 